everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian Bowling, and with me, as always, is my cohort, Brandon Odo. We have a special guest with us today to class up the show a little bit. Uh, Dr. Ashley Winter, she is a board-certified urologist uh, who did her residency at uh, NYU. Is it NYU Presbyterian or New York Presbyterian Cornell? Uh, yeah, it's separate. It's separate. It's actually Cornell and Columbia are part of the same hospital system. It's weird. I don't know. But NYU is separate. Anyway, all right. So Pres- New York Presbyterian <laughs> Cornell, not NYU. That place stinks. Uh, but then went to Portland, Oregon, kind of hopping across the country and, uh, was practicing there for five years before now. She is the chief medical officer of Odella Health. And, um, we're going to talk a little bit today about some urology stuff in the ICU. I think Brandon's got a case for us. Yeah, we do. I thought we would get into some relatively fundamental stuff, but something we see uh, pretty often. And, you know, we understand, I think, our ICU side of it, but a lot of time we have blind spots about how the, the surgeons think about these problems. So, Ashley, you are covering uh, the inpatient urology service at uh, your local unnamed hospital, and they call you about a patient who rolled into the ED. It's a 61-year-old female. And she has a history of some diabetes, hypertension. She does have a history of recurrent UTIs, and she describes having about a week or so of some pain when she urinated and some urinary frequency. You know, she's had UTIs in the past. She says that was kind of how it felt. And then uh, since about yesterday, she started to have some pain in her flank and in her lower abdomen, kind of shooting down into her groin. And then today, uh, she really is just not feeling well. She's feeling very weak, a lot of malaise, and just generally ill. She thought she might have a fever. So she came into the ED. At triage there, they take her vitals, and she's hypotensive down to 80 over 40, which is a map of around 55. She's tachycardic around 110, 115, and she is febrile at 38.1. And she just is very kind of restless and uncomfortable looking. They do a UA, which shows 3-plus blood, 1-plus leukocytes, 1-plus bacteria, and they run her through a, a non-contrast CT scan of her abdomen and pelvis, and that shows an obstructing stone in her proximal left ureter. It's about a centimeter. Uh, and hydronephrosis of that left kidney. The bladder is somewhat distended, too. So the emergency medicine folks are thinking, well, I mean, this looks like maybe a UTI, and, and clearly there's obstruction. They start her on some broad antibiotics, it's uh, piperacillin, tazobactam, and vancomycin for her. They give her some fluids, and her blood pressure actually responds. Uh, they give her a liter or two, and her map is around 70 now. And they call you for urology to get your take. So just give me an initial sense for this type of problem. What are the kind of key pieces of information and decision points that you're thinking about just initially when you hear about a patient like this? You know, I mean, that is a perfect recipe for needing to unobstruct them, meaning 
you know, either a stent or um, a percutaneous uh, nephrostomy tube. So to the extent that this is a septic patient, I mean, we sort of know how to treat that, but is a good way to think about this problem kind of analogous to someone with like an abscess that needs to be drained? You have the source of infection is not just um, like a cellulitis, something in your tissue, but it it is failing to drain itself because something is blocking it. Yeah, 100%. I mean, with this sort of person, you know, in terms of giving them a good clinical outcome, um, decompression of their urinary system is absolutely essential. Um, and doing it sooner than later is, is absolutely essential. Um, you know, these are, these are the patients that can go from bad to dead if you don't, um, you know, decompress them right away. And, and the reason, of course, as you were alluding to, is because um, when the stone is obstructing, um, you know, you, you develop that high intrarenal pressure and, um, that can allow, you know, it's, it's a, it's a source whereby bacteria, um, you know, are kind of continuing to seed, uh, into the, into the bloodstream, um, because, because the, the urine kind of can't drain. So, you know, uh, uh, one thing I would comment, um, from, from the, you know, stone assessment side of this is when they say, you know, an obstructing stone um, in the in the ureter, right? Now, this person, if they come in with the same clinical picture um, and they have a one centimeter stone in the ureter, uh, whether or not they have hydronephrosis, if they're presenting with data that suggests a UTI with hemodynamic instability and a stone in their ureter, whether or not they have hydronephrosis, uh, that person, we should attempt some sort of, of drainage of their kidney. And the reason I say that is because somebody could come in and be profoundly dehydrated because um, they are so ill. Um, and, you know, maybe the hydronephrosis is mild or not even present, but we really know that a stone that size in the ureter is going to be causing an obstruction. Um, and this is one of the reasons why when somebody comes in critically ill and you have a suspicion for um, a kidney stone, uh, you know, I, I highly recommend doing a, a non-contrast CT scan as opposed to, um, you know, people who do an ultrasound um, because sometimes an ultrasound can miss something like this, right? Because the renal ultrasound does not completely image the ureter. Um, and so, uh, that will tell you the presence or absence of hydronephrosis, but, um, it really won't give you a complete picture of the, of the ure ureteral anatomy. Um, and certainly I have had people with just mild hydronephrosis, uh, you know, a ureteral stone, um, and the same clinical picture. Um, and, you know, we placed a stent and a whole bunch of pus came out, um, and, and they had a clinical improvement where you're talking about having them referred either for nephrostomy or a stent. They're going to need a stent most likely because, um, you know, interventional radiology has, has trouble if, if the degree of hydronephrosis is less, um, you know, placing, placing uh, an access point into the, into the renal pelvis. Okay. So in a sick patient, or let's say a sort of septic looking patient who has a stone, well, I guess let's say anywhere in a ureter, you would kind of consider them to be obstructing until you prove otherwise. I guess we should say someone with, who seems to have UTI, or is that sometimes difficult to say as well? I mean, my my statement here would be if somebody's septic and they have a stone in their ureter, you should try to place a stent. Okay, and that's because to, to prove that it's obstructing is a, 
sometimes tricky because hydronephrosis is not always obvious. Although if it's present, that certainly supports the case. The overall point is that the radiographic definition of obstruction on in the urinary tract, I believe is related to hydronephrosis and not the anatomic position of the stone. Um, but from a urology standpoint, the size and the location of the stone are the most important thing. Um, so that would be kind of the way of distilling what I'm getting at. Um, you know, I, I get called sometimes by providers who say, oh, this stone is severely obstructing, right? And I look at the scan and it's a one millimeter stone and it's right by the ureterovesicle junction, right? That means where it's about to come out. And there is severe hydronephrosis. Um, but that person is about to pass that stone, right? That person is 99.9% going to pass that stone. So they don't really need a urologic in intervention, even if the degree of hydronephrosis is profound. Um, and even if the radio ra radiologist reads it as severely obstructing, right? Because we're looking at it from the standpoint of, of uh, the size and the location. Um, now, <laughs> if that person has a one millimeter stone, right by the ureterovesical junction about to pass into the bladder and their septic, uh, that's a more complicated story. And, uh, you know, that's certainly the person where you consider putting a stent regardless um, because you don't want their infection to get worse and for obviously for them to, to not have an issue with their, uh, to not be able to have source control. So and we're talking about stones in the ureter. A stone that's just in the kidney is not going to be causing obstruction. Uh, well, this is also very, 90% uh, of the time, you are correct. Um, you know, there are some instances where you have uh, abnormal renal, intrarenal anatomy. So there can be something like a, a calicil diverticulum. That is where one of the renal calices um, let's say has a has a diverticulum, right? And you could have a stone sitting in that, blocking that part of the kidney from draining, right? Um, and so you could have a um, part of the kidney that has hydronephrosis without the like a segmental hydronephrosis, right? These things are uncommon, um, and a sophisticated. Uh, you know, you kind of need a sophisticated lens to look at them. I have seen people on occasion that have a component of their intrarenal anatomy that's that's obstructed when the rest isn't and they don't have a stone in the ureter. Um, of course, this is why, you know, as a urologist, you need to look at all the scans yourself. Um, you know, I, when I get called about these patients, I, you know, if there's a stone, if somebody has a UTI and they're septic and the ER or the critical care um, provider wants to just call me and say, hey, can you look at this scan? I'm happy to do that, right? And I can say, yeah, that stone is not obstructing. You don't need me, right? That's fine. <laughs> um, you know, so so I'd say if somebody has a specific concern, um, you know, you can call us and ask us to look at the scan. 90% um, of the time, uh, you know, you're not going to need a need a stent. Um, I'm, I'm kind of like going off the zebras, but, it, you know, from the like ultra sophisticated lens of, of urologic considerations. In the like canonical case of the stone in the ureter, a septic patient, is there any circumstance that patient would not need to be decompressed? We kind of said one possible one where it was really little and it was almost all the way through. Maybe you could say, well, it's about to pop out. Is there any other situation or it's pretty much, there's no way around this unless it's like the patient is going to be like comfort measures or something, you know, but 
Almost never. I mean, this is what I will say. Um, there is the patient who comes in with a obstructing ureteral stone and they're septic, right? And their sepsis is from something else because they don't have a urinary tract infection, right? Um, so, and that that definitely happens, right? Um, so that person, maybe they actually also have whatever, pneumonia or uh, diverticulitis or what what have you, right? And and their stone is an incidental finding, right? And in that case, you do have to be careful because you don't want to take somebody who is, uh, you know, unstable, <laughs> hemodynamically unstable, and subject them to uh, anesthesia <laughs> uh, for something that isn't going to lead to source control, right? And I'd say a classic case of this is somebody, right, they're coming in, maybe they have fl flank pain, they don't have urinary symptoms, but they're hypotensive, um, you know, febrile, uh, the ER gets the CT scan, you have the stone in the ureter, um, and you have a UA that looks dirty, right? Uh, and that's when, but they didn't have UTI symptoms, right? So that's when I ask the ER to get a, a straight cath uh, urine sample um, because there are patients who give a clean catch and they have an improper technique, right? Um, or because they're coming in, you know, hypotensive and unwell, maybe they're dehydrated, or maybe they can't really give a good sample. Um, and it is so important. This is another thing if like there's one takeaway from the people who listen to your um, to your podcast is to get, um, you know, a urine sample and a good urine sample right away. Um, and before, you know, antibiotics are administered, administered, because that can, that can lead to, you know, diagnostic conundrum. And of course, obviously, if there's no other possible source, um, you know, then to definitely, definitely consider it, right? Like if, if they don't have any sign of pneumonia or they don't have a, Perforated diverticulitis, diverticulitis, right? Then, then fine. And this is also where it gets more complicated. If they have a real complete obstruction, there is a possibility that they have pyelonephritis behind the stone, um, and they have a clean urine analysis because they have no infection in the bladder, and they only have an infection in the kidney behind the stone. Um, that's not very common, uh, but it does happen. So. If they have a if if they are having a critical picture, they do have an obstructing urinal stone, um, and they have no other potential source for their sepsis. Um, then you probably need to assume that they have an infection behind the stone that's not being reflected on their urine analysis, and that they probably need urgent decompression. Okay. Um, I, it sounds like I'm complicating every situation more <laughs> than simplifying it. <laughs> Well, medicine is complicated. Uh, yeah. So, well, so we kind of understand these patients by and large need to be decompressed then. Um, we'll get into the techniques, but what's your general timeline for this? You said it needs to be done fairly promptly, but are we talking about within a couple hours, same day, within a few days? How urgent is this? Yeah, I would say within a couple hours. I mean, as soon as possible, right? Um, you know. So this patient somebody, comes in at midnight. Is this a the overnight kind of thing or a first thing in the morning kind of thing? Overnight. Overnight. Absolutely. A hundred percent overnight. This is the patient. Now, let's say they come in and they have mild UTI symptoms and 
they have a stone, but they're 100% hemodynamically stable and perfectly well, then that person's not going to leave the hospital before I decompress them. But maybe we're waiting, you know, for first thing in the morning, right? The person who's unstable and has an obstructing stone, the UTI, that person you have to do as soon as possible. What would you do in the office with somebody who was not, not septic, but had a UTI and maybe you got a scan and they had a stone? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, I love this question. So in my last practice, we had access to fluoroscopy in the office. Um, so if the patient was willing, sometimes I would place a stent in the office. Um, you know, you have to understand that that is highly dependent on an individual patient's tolerance for an invasive procedure um, in the clinic, right? Because you are putting a number of instruments through their urethra. Um, so I have done that in both men and women, but again, um, you know, <laughs> it, it needs, um, a high degree of, of patient, um, tolerance uh, or interest. Right. Um, but there are people who are, who are like, I just want to deal with this right, right away. Um, that said, otherwise, um, if they are in my clinic, um, we see that they have evidence of a UTI in their urine analysis, uh, we have a scan that shows an obstructing stone. Um, you know, what I'm going to do is if they're, you know, if there's concern that I have that they may become unstable, right? Like they're very elderly, high comorbidities, et cetera, then I'm going to tell them first to be NPO. That is the most important <laughs> thing. Um, and go to the emergency room or we'll arrange for them to have uh, transport to the emergency room. Um, you know, if they have a UTI, um, maybe they're healthy, um, younger, they have evidence of a stone, but again, all their hemodynamic signs are, are stable, then, um, you know, that might be the person where I'm calling my colleagues um, and assessing, you know, if I can get them added on directly to the OR um, without going through the emergency room. All right. So we talked about decompression usually falls into two categories. Just give us a kind of brief summary of these two approaches, what they look like in a general sense, and how and when you would consider one versus the other. Sure. Uh, so the two options are a ureteral stent, um, you know, to kind of do an overview of what that is. Uh, that's basically where uh, a urologist goes in through the urethra and deploys um, this, this plastic tube that has a curl, uh, one curl is deployed to be within the renal pelvis, the other curl goes within the bladder, um, and that allows urine to drain uh, around the stent, um, right? So it's not like a cardiac stent that uh, is deployed to expand the lumen, right? It's it's a piece of plastic with a non-expanding lumen, um, and the urine flows, flows around it. It's also intended to be temporary. Uh, they can only stay in for a maximum of uh, about three months. Um, but, um, so, so, you know, either they're going to have to come back after their infection is treated, their sepsis has passed, um, to have that stent removed after serial imaging that demonstrates that the stone has passed, or they're going to have to come back to urology and have a surgical procedure to remove their stone. Um, so that's the, you know, basics with the stent. Important things to know is that we generally use it at a minimum, um, IV sedation in the operating room with that, um, just because, again, you're putting generally 
a rigid metal cystoscope through the urethra to deploy that stent, right? So imagine having a large rigid metal cystoscope going through your urethra. You don't usually like having that while you're not anesthetized. Uh, so, so uh, you know, that is a consideration um, that goes into it is the extent uh, and degree of, of anesthesia that's required for that. Um, so that's, that's number one. Um, and there are certain times when like you really, really can't um, utilize a stent first line. Um, typically that's going to be more of somebody coming in with a, with a hydronephrosis or an obstruction related to, let's say a large pelvic mass, right. Or something where we feel like the anatomy is so distorted that it's going to be hard for us to find the ureteral orifice, right. It's going to be hard for us to access the upper urinary tract from the bladder. Okay. Usually with a stone, it's not an issue, but um, you know, there are times when right off the bat, we're like, we're not even going to try a stent in this person. And usually it has to do with really severe distortion of the pelvic anatomy. Um, the other uh, option is a percutaneous nephrostomy tube. In most hospitals, that's done by interventional radiology. Uh, and that's basically <clears throat> where the radiologist, um, you know, typically has the patient prone, uh, right? So laying face down, um, and they're using imaging, typically ultrasound, um, to visualize the renal pelvis, and they access that with a you know with a needle, and they deploy a small what we call like a pigtail um, catheter that curls within the renal pelvis and directly exits the body. Right. So the upsides with that is it typically requires less anesthesia. Right. Sometimes they can just use local um, even right because they're not going through the urethra, so it's less. Um, there's less of a tract that that can be painful um, when they're placing that that nephrostomy tube. Um, um, you know, obviously, if the patient can't be prone for some specific reason, that can make it very difficult. Uh, other things that can make it difficult, as I mentioned earlier, if they don't have severe hydronephrosis, maybe they're dehydrated, that can make it more difficult. Um, you know, people with a much larger body habitus. Uh, it can be quite difficult and those people might preferentially need a stent. Uh, and then, you know, from the patient stamp standpoint, um, you end up with a urine bag, right? So, so unlike a stent, which is all internal, the percutaneous nephrostomy tube, and I'm, I'm sure people who listen to this are aware of that, but you know, when you have the percutaneous nephrostomy tube, you have a urine bag sitting around. Now, if it's there to save your life, that's, that's fine, but, but it's frustrating for a lot of people while you have it. Um, that said, of course, uh, it's never it's not intended to be permanent. And once their infection is treated and their stone is managed, uh, you know, typically that that tube is going to be re removed. Um, the other important thing from a critical care standpoint is if uh, you know the patient is on anticoagulation or a specific antiplatelet agent, uh, interventional radiology would likely not want to place an nephrostomy tube because um, you know you are putting a needle directly through the renal parenchyma, right? And that's highly vascularized tissue. Um, and so you don't want to end up with a, you know, perinephrochematoma, for example. Um, so, so that's another consideration that comes into it. Okay. Uh, the one of the largest factors, of course, is institutional, right? Um, where I uh, was practicing general urology uh, as a, an attending for, for over five years, you know, the expectation was that um, in all cases, unless urology 
felt it was absolutely impossible to place a stent or um, they had already tried and failed, uh, interventional radiology just basically wasn't going to do it. So, um, you know, the expectation was that we tried first or we felt like it was impossible and then they would do it. Uh, so, you know, I'd say to your callers, I mean, to your, I would say to your listeners, <laughs> um, you know, you're, you're probably already aware um, about your institutional policies or typically you're just consulting urology because a patient's critically ill and they have an obstruction and your first line consult for that patient is just not interventional radiology anyway. And then we make that recommendation. So you're probably going to be contacting us no matter what is my assumption. So in some number of patients, there are technical considerations for one versus the other. And then, uh, you know, it's a little bit more of a burden to have the nephrostomy because you have an external device in place. But the rest of the time, it may just be a matter of who's more available or, or, or willing, urology versus IR. Yes. Okay. And then both these devices are going to stay essentially until patient stable, the infection has cleared and the stone has passed? Or they come see us, or they come see us and we, you know, urology arranges an outpatient procedure to manage the stone. Yes. Okay. It's passed um, spontaneously or with your help, in other words. Yes. Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> um, and if they have a massive stone, like something like a staghorn calculus, um, it actually might be advantageous to have the percutaneous nephrostomy because the type of surgery that you do on those stones is one called a percutaneous uh, nephrolithotomy. Uh, and that's where you actually go directly through that hole in the back to, to get rid of the stone. Um, for smaller stones or stones in the ureter, we do a surgery called ureteroscopy, where we put a camera directly into the ureter and blast up the stone. Um, but that would be another indication. So if somebody comes in and they're septic and they have a massive stone in their kidney uh, and an infection, we might recommend that they have a, a percutaneous nephrostomy tube placed because that is advantageous for their ultimate stone management and it will achieve um, the the appropriate immediate clinical outcome of decompression. And there is really no situation ordinarily where either in the nephrostomy or the stent is going to be left in place long term for this sort of indication. I know we've all seen people with long term nephrostomies and such, but it's not not really for stones. Not really for stones. No. Uh, again, with the exception of somebody you're saying is, you know, kind of end of life maybe and, you know, the family wanted their immediate sepsis managed, but no other procedures, let's say. But okay. but no. For the stone patient, they're not going to have that long term. A uh, patient like this, when we're in this initial phase of managing them, do you care if somebody puts a Foley in them? Is that good, bad, doesn't matter? Critically, if they're critically ill and we do a decompression, we typically leave, this, leave a catheter in them, uh, you know, at least in the initial 24-hour period. Uh, like if I'm placing a stent and you're septic, <laughs> I put a Foley in the operating room um, at the end of the case. And if we already have one in, you'll just take it out to do the scope and then potentially replace it. Oh, yeah. It. Yeah, you have to. Um, and this is, yeah, you have to because the our access point to do this whole procedure is through the urethra. Are there, are there any stones that because of their size or maybe their location, you cannot stent? Like you cannot get a stent around them? Yes, that is also a very excellent and sophisticated question. So there are what we call impacted stones. Sometimes we can't get a stent around them. Um, I'd say it's not super common, and usually there are some some tricks to to navigate those. Um, like we have special types of wires that are hydrophilic, 
um, that are very slippery that help you get around those stones. Um, but there are times um, when I have attempted to place a stent and it's just 100% impossible. Um, let's say maybe this person has had the stone for quite some time and it's very impacted. Um, and that's the sort of situation where I'm probably have tried the stent and I call, um, you know, the interventional radiologist and I'm like, hey, I just cannot get this in. Um, can you do a nephrostomy? I think a lot of us who take care of these patients uh, kind of after their procedure have found that they often seem to get worse after they're decompressed. There's just this common phenomenon where they seem to, even if they're kind of quasi-stable before, like this patient, um, sometimes they just become very floridly septic looking after and much more hypotensive and so on. Is, have you found that to be the case? Yes. And there are some reasons, right? So there can be a component of um, iatrogenesis here um, because when I'm placing a stent, right, I what I first do is I, right, once I get into the bladder, I identify the ureteral orifice, I pass the wire up to the kidney, and then I pass um, a small open-ended catheter into the kidney, right? And what I try to do is allow the kidney to decompress a bit while I'm standing there with this open-ended catheter, right? It's like a very long, very skinny tube. Um, it's actually five French. So if you know, you know, are familiar with French, it's five French and it's several feet long. <laughs> so, um, but if it has a rapid drip, then I allow that to decompress. Um, but then before you put the stent, typically what you're doing is injecting some contrast medium into their renal pelvis so that on the fluoroscopy in the operating room, you can make sure that your stent your proximal stent curl is in the correct space, right? Um, and so if you are not very careful and you inject too much contrast or you don't allow this, the, the renal pelvis to decompress before you inject that contrast, um, then you are basically hitting that renal pelvis with a high degree of pressure, right? Um, you know, I, I don't know if there's any studies looking at like, the specific quantity of contrast medium injected and sub-transient clinical worsening after this procedure. Um, but it is, at least from a urology standpoint, you know, a kind of common lore that you have to be really careful with the amount of contrast that you inject directly into the renal pelvis because you don't want to, um, you know, just pressure slam uh, that bacteria into uh, the bloodstream. So, so there's that. Yeah. I mean, and that's one component of it. And then, you know, I'm sure it's just, um, you know, instrumentation in general leads to some, some clinical worsening. And then I think also it's just a lag, right? I mean, these patients come in at the precipice of becoming the precipice sometimes of, of death <laughs> really. And we caught them and their clinical picture is just, you know, proceeding as it would have, and they need some time to have the benefit of the decompression. Um, so there's a few ways of looking at that, right? Like a component of iatrogenesis, a component of the natural progression of how ill they were, and and they have a delayed um, improvement. Any opinion on antibiotics, either selection or the duration, or can we just treat these like any complicated UTI empirically and then narrowing if we get some cultures? If somebody has a complex urologic history and has presented with stones in the past, um, you know, and I'm sure you do this as, as critical care providers anyway, um, you're going to want to look through their history and see how they have cultures done in the past, right? And some of these patients have a history of a multi-drug resistant organism, 
Um, or, you know, they've even had stone culture done, which we like to do sometimes in urology because sometimes there's a, there's a latent bacteria that's actually embedded within the stone that's not um, typically found on the urine culture. So in any of these patients, I think it is important to, to look through their history. And of course, um, you know, if you have um, an EMR that doesn't allow access to outpatient records, then at least, you know, the next morning, uh, trying to contact the office of their urologist um, to get some of that data is very important. And we always appreciate uh, when that data is on hand. Are there any other important complications of either of these procedures that people should be aware of? We talked about maybe bleeding after a percutaneous drainage. Um, Anything else that can happen even infrequently? You know, for example, there can be stent migration. So, um, you know, at times, uh, if, if the patient is continuing to get worse after you do the, the stent, right? Like not just the typical window of, let's say, a number of hours, but um, it's two days afterwards, right? And they're still doing worse. Um, you know, it could just be because they're critically ill and they've had um, you know, a kind of end organ damage, uh, you know, from, from their initial insult. But we always at least do some repeat imaging if that case is happening. So the easiest thing you can do, especially in the ICU, is start with a bedside KUB um, because that will show, right, on x-ray, you can see the stent. And if the proximal portion of the stent is not curled, then they'll probably need additional imaging, such as a renal ultrasound or a CT scan. Um, but that's a pretty an easy screening tool, is just um, a bedside abdominal x-ray to check the stent position. Um, so that's, that's one thing. Um, of course, discomfort. I'm sure uh, you also have seen these patients, and particularly with the ureteral stents, while they don't have a urine bag out of their flank, which is nice, uh, ureteral stents tend to be far more uncomfortable than a percutaneous nephrostomy. Uh, and these people feel like they need to pee all the time, um, even when their bladder is empty, <laughs> uh, right? Because they have something irritating their, their, the inside of their bladder. Um, or they can even have flank pain with voiding. So once their Foley is out and they're voiding, they can have flank pain with voiding because actually as you increase the intravesical pressure, so as you increase the, the pressure in your bladder with voiding, you can actually have reflux up the stent, um, which can cause distension of the renal pelvis and pain, right? And that's, because that's an interesting thing, right? You're natural, in the vast majority of adults who do not have, uh, you know, we have a, a mechanism that prevents reflux of urine back into your kidney um, when you when you void, but the stent unfortunately keeps that open and and doesn't prevent that reflux. So that's some considerations. Um, you know, I, I mean, there's always like the the surgical issues, right? So I mean, there are specific instances where somebody places the stent incorrectly and the stent, you know, the, the proximal portion of the stent is outside of the kidney or within the renal parenchyma. Those things are very uncommon, um, but they can happen. Um, of course, there could be injury, you know, to the bladder or ureter. Again, those things are very uncommon. Brian, questions, thoughts? So you mentioned um, the temporary stent. The, uh, are there some that stay in forever then? No, these, these all eventually come out. Okay, uh, all right. They all, yeah. If if there's somebody with a chronic or permanent need for decompression, right, a chronic or permanent need for a stent or a or a nephrostomy tube, we have to coordinate as on an outpatient basis them having that changed every three months about. 
okay. which which does happen. So I've had patients who, let's say, have hydronephrosis due to ureteral obstruction from cancer, right? And that person comes to my, usually I exchange those in the clinic actually. And I've had a number of patients that I'm just very good friends with and they come to my office every three months forever and I change their stents. <laughs> um, so yes, and I just mentioned that because I think a lot of, at least particularly lay people, when they think of stents, they think of cardiac stents. Right, right. Um, which, yeah, which are just very different. Now, when these are removed, so we don't get a whole lot of primary urology patients in the SICU. Um, but every so often, I will get a call from urology. Hey, we've got this patient coming out of the operating room. They are kind of hypotensive. They don't look so great. We'd like to put them in the ICU kind of overnight for monitoring. And it's almost always removal of a ureteral stent. Um, and they end up being kind of mildly septic, maybe really septic. Um, and then, you know, we kind of nurse them for a day or so and they get better and they always do fine. Um, is this something that's common? Like, I don't mean to say we get this a lot, right. But it just feels like it's common enough that if I ever get a call from urology, I can pretty much predict this is going to be the problem. We, you know, remove the stents. Let's say somebody had a kidney stone surgery, uh, ureteroscopy, right? So we went in their ureter with a camera, we blasted the stone. That's usually an outpatient procedure. Mm -hmm. um, the patient goes home with a stent. Uh, and then they come back to our clinic. They pull out, We pull out the stent in the clinic typically, um, which is a very quick procedure. But again, yes, if that stent is colonized with bacteria, um, potentially the manipulation has stirred something up. And then that person calls back our clinic later that day and says, Hey, I have a fever. Right. And that's potentially the person. I mean, that's a person who are like, maybe you need to go to the ER and get evaluated. And then that person, obviously, if they're, if they're having that sepsis picture, then, you know, have to get admitted and we're calling you. Um, and, and typically it's because they're stent in that period of time, whether it's one week, two weeks, a month, two months since their stone procedure, um, you know, has had colonization of that stent. And so we're manipulating something, um, you know, typically if somebody's had a stent in for a number of weeks before we manipulate it, then we're trying to uh, get a urine sample before we, we manipulate it and remove it, um, you know, to make sure that they don't necessarily have an infection. And, and definitely whenever I pull out stents in the clinic, I do pre-medicate with an antibiotic. Um, so there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of surgical procedures that don't need antibiotics. And of course, I'm a very strong believer in not over-utilizing antibiotics. Um, but stent removals, we always give, you know, an oral antibiotic in the office, or if they have a history of a complex organism or a multi-drug resistant organism, you know, sometimes we're giving like you know, an intramuscular tobramycin in the clinic before they have that stent removed. So there's a lot of things we can do, um, you know, to prevent that from happening, but it's, it's not impossible. Um, sure. Yeah. Sure. And, and, you know, I say this a lot to people who work in the, in the ICU, right? We see a unbalanced subset of patients, right? We, we sort of get this impression that God, every time they take a stent out of somebody, they get, seriously septic when in reality it's that's the only time you guys call us right so yeah we see right. five of these a year maybe and like but it just it does feel like hey that's something we commonly see so but yeah that, that doesn't sound like it's common in the grand scheme of things 
Final thoughts, anything else that you want critical care folks to know about this disease, Ashley? If somebody's coming in, obviously, with like new onset renal failure, people always consider urinary retention, but sometimes there's an upper tract component as well. Um, so, you know, if they come in with a grossly elevated creatinine um, and let's say they get a bladder ultrasound, and the bladder is not not full, um, then you know it still is worth um, additional imaging uh, to make sure that they don't have something like stones. And I have seen, you know, that sounds like that's a zebra, but there are people who have come in um, aneuric with an elevated creatinine and they have bilateral ureteral stones. So um, you know, it, it certainly can happen, and that's something that um, before they end up with you know a dialysis catheter, um, you know, if they if they need bilateral stents, that's a that's a much more optimal outcome. So um, it it can rarely happen, but I'd say always consider the upper urinary tract, um, you know, for those for those patients as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, remember, everyone, these have just been our own opinions, not those of our employers, and uh, just general educational content, not medical advice. I will talk to you guys next time. <laughs>